With events slowly returning, many of us are looking forward to long weekends in the field. But how would you feel about extending that time to maybe four, five, or six days, or even longer? In this episode of the Reenactors Corner, we'll be talking about the pros and cons of hosting or attending longer duration events and discovering what's the best way to check your smartphone when you're attempting to be immersed in the 1940s. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner Podcast. This is Chris here once again. I've got a special guest. His name is Felix Mueller. He has been a member of my reenactment group for a long time. We reenacted together uh, previously for many years before that. Very experienced reenactor who has participated in events in uh, many parts of the United States over a long period of years. Felix Mueller, thanks for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate that introduction also. So our topic today is going to be about long duration events. So I guess first off, Felix, what what to you is like a long duration event? Yeah, these are, these are events near and dear to my heart. Uh, I think we should define a long event as something that lasts longer than two nights. I don't know how you feel about that. This is going to be a subjective thing between the two of us. Well, you know that there's some guy out there listening to this who does events for 28 days or whatever who's going to turn up his nose. I'm jealous of that guy. Yeah. Yeah, I can't be that guy. Um, if I could, I would. But I think for the average Joe, uh, the rank and file guys in the hobby, your standard event would be a Friday, Saturday, Sunday event. Yeah. And I think a long event is anything where you show up Thursday night or earlier and stay through sa- stay through Sunday. Sure. And I think uh, we can cite a few very prominent examples of these types of events. Obviously, first and foremost, the event that's number one in our hearts, Fort Indian Town Gap, the now defunct FIG event. I think we used to show up to this thing on Tuesday. I think there are, yeah, I think one time I got there on Tuesday morning. Tuesday, which is crazy when you think about it. Sure. And... The Odessa, New York events, I think we've shown up as early as Tuesday as well for those. I don't know if we ever did a Tuesday. I know Wednesday was kind of the standard for a long time. Still a long time to be at an event. Um, And then in more recent times, I can think of the Stalingrad, Ohio events, where we showed up on Wednesday. Wednesday morning. Stayed through, I think, Saturday, uh, Saturday night. Saturday night. On those events for, I think the first year was for a blizzard. Well, the first year we didn't show up on Wednesday. The longest we ever did there was Wednesday through Sunday. We left, I think, Saturday night because uh, the entire world was falling apart with COVID. This most recent yeah, time, this yeah. last time. And we were living in a post-apocalyptic hellscape. Which we didn't have a lot of information about. So we had to get out of there to get some information to, to survive. see where we were at. Yeah. Uh, so I, that was a long event. I mean, I'm, I'm talking, really, once you spend three nights an event um, you've been there for a long time and I think Fort Mifflin which we did in January uh, we were there Thursday night Friday night Saturday night as well yeah and uh, for me it's like uh, the first thing 
we got to ask ourselves when we're approaching a long event is what are we trying to do at this event? Because the first thoughts about the event are usually, for me, a lot of imagery. When I think about Odessa, I think about time spent in the field. When I think about Fort Indian Town Gap, I think about time spent in the barracks. When I think about Stalingrad, I, I put myself into that factory. And more recently, when we did Fort Mifflin, I put myself in the office setting, which is what we were doing at that event. But there's so much more that goes into it, isn't there? Sure. I mean, the the preparation for these events begins months in advance, maybe a year in advance sometimes. Yeah, I mean, in, in theory, the preparation for every event is something that, that takes some time. But when you're really planning, when you've got that much time to deal with, I mean, like, I just did an event just recently, and you know, last weekend, and got there on Friday. I got there Friday morning and was there until Sunday. Um, Friday morning, you get there, you set up camp, you have a few hours to do some training or something before the sun goes down, and then maybe there's a night mission thing. Saturday day, you know, you wake up, you do the tactical. Then Saturday night for us at this most recent event was mostly socializing time, and that's your whole event. And so really, you're only planning, the only planning there for the most part, besides the the basics of the logistical situation, who's bringing the tent, who's bringing the food or whatever, is, okay, we have to fill a few hours in the afternoon on Friday. Whereas when you're there for days, you have entire sunup to sundown periods where you have to, you have to fill that time. And let's not mince words. I mean, the crux, the main attraction at, at any reenactment is, we talked about this earlier, is the tactical. Sure, for most participants. And in some of these events, anecdotally, we were not involved whatsoever in the tactical. For example, at the Gap, our function was entirely rear area. Right. There was a giant tactical that happened on Saturday, a smaller one on Friday. We had nothing to do with any of that. It might as well have been happening on the moon. Um, but at an Odessa or a Stalingrad, uh, there is a tactical, and you're inextricably affected by that uh, but you're right. There's long periods of time where you need to come up with something to do. I think something that we've done in the past that helps with that is event primers, mm-hmm. which uh, some people are very that we know are very good at making these primers. Uh, I think it's good to start with a broader historical context. Uh, we are in this place in time. This is what's going on uh, broadly in the war, the period of the war that we might be attempting to immerse ourselves within. Um, and then you kind of get down to more like, uh, an expectations thing. I don't know how useful you think these have been in the past, but I think particularly for Fort Indian town gap, they were useful for getting everybody kind of on the same page on the same page as a team. Well, just, just in case there's anybody out there who is confused about specifically what we're talking about. We're talking about a written document that is either a hard copy thing or um, is you know online in some capacity that is a bunch of text that participants are expected to read. And I think you know if you've got a crew of guys who will read that, um, there's no better way to set a tone. Sure, and when you're at an event for that long, having that tone, having that context will often shape what you're doing at that event. Uh, I think it works best when you have a large number of people, maybe 10 or more going. Uh, if it's just two or three people, uh, you're probably intrinsically going to be about on the same level with with or without a primer. It's just something that we've done in the past that I think 
when it comes to a long event, when you take the whole uh, the whole picture into view, all the commitment that's needed, the time and the money and the resources, this is one of those little extra sweeteners that we used to do to make these things extra special because these were like the main events. These were the dates that you circled on the calendar uh, and you still will uh, as kind of like a max effort type thing, something that as we used to say, everyone's going to bring their A game for this. And sure. that game extends beyond um, the state of your kit, what you're bringing. It's, it's where you are at mentally, going to these things. Uh, you want to go into these, these things uh, expecting to have a good time, but you have to do your part as well to make it a good time. And uh, there's one other thing uh, kind of related to primers, uh, work parties. Sure. Now, we were known to do work parties before these long events to make sure um, that to achieve our A game we had laid groundwork and that's what I mean by there would be weeks and months of, of preparation going into these things. For Fort Indian Town Gap for many years we uh, reenacted as a motorized infantry unit. We had vehicles, vehicles with motors, vehicles that sat unattended for long periods of time and needed uh, work whether it was mechanical or paint or they needed to be put on a trailer all the little sequential things that go into bringing vehicles hundreds of miles to an event and making sure that they're operable. Also, uh, we had cannons that needed to be worked on to work at the event. We had a field kitchen that needed to be maintained and ensured that it would operate. Um, we would do uh, smaller uh, work parties related to making rations. And I think that all uh, left good memories for people, and that's something that you would do for these big marquee events that you might not might not do for a, something that's just a weekend or an overnight. Yeah, I mean, uh, something that's an overnight, you know, to circle back around a little bit to something that you said about where you are mentally going in, you know, um, an event that is a short duration event that you're just doing as a day trip or, or one or maybe two nights, um, you know, you don't even really have enough time to get bored. You don't have enough time to start to for the thing to start to get old you know it just goes by so quick the rhythm of setup tactical hang out say your goodbyes maybe you sleep there maybe you don't you know but you got to take it down whatever it is whereas um the long event you have to have a mindset you know you have to know going in this is this is the headspace that we're trying to get into. You know, this is the attitude that we want people to present, you know, and uh, that takes some effort to kind of, you know, I don't really want to say indoctrinate, right? But you really need to communicate to the other, you need to make sure that the people who are doing the planning are on the same page. And if everybody is involved with the planning, great. But if there are people that aren't involved with the planning, you need to basically make sure they're on your page. You know that is a major rub, and there's always a lot of communication uh, flying back and forth, scattershot about this or that minute element of an event. But I could think of the gap, for example. Um, you've got to fill the time on Wednesday, potentially Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday before you get to a tactical that you may or may not be participating in. And just doing marching and rifle drill, which is something we used to do a lot and was very enjoyable, is not going to fill all that time. So you've got to, we've in the past we did things like training, uh, various different uh, military style training, but also informational training, 
we did classes uh, we would have a a watch schedule and these are luxuries that you can enjoy when you have a lot of people going to an event but uh, you've got to make some sort of effort you don't want to be sitting around an event like that twiddling your thumbs um, but I, I think uh, a point I want to make about the long event is uh, this is more existential than anything else at what point when you take into account that you are going to do, let's say, two weekend work parties leading up to something, all kinds of behind-the-scenes communication all day, every day, work on your kit, procurement of new kit items, uh, defarbing rations and and uh, drinks. At what point are we departing from hobby and we're getting into, is this a lifestyle? Sure. And I could think of some events in the past where I would pace my entire year around these events. And it was great, but it's, I mean, at a certain point, how much is it influencing your life? I'm not saying it's a good or a bad thing. I'm saying that's what differentiates the long event to me, is this is something that you know is the presence of it is looming for months in advance, and you're scheduling your everyday life around something that's going to go by fairly quickly. But for me, in recent times, having to travel, having to fly for events, uh, I try to focus on the longer events as almost like a more bang for your buck type of thing. Now I've flown back and done overnights, which were great, but I've also done three four night events and that's like a vacation within a vacation. I've, I've taken the time off from work. I've committed financially, temporarily to these things. Um, I've upgraded parts of my kit specifically for this thing. And it's, it's great to be able to do that. So at what point is it, is it a vacation? Is it a lifestyle? It's certainly a departure from the everyday. Well, just for people who don't know, um, Felix is from uh, New England, where where I live, where my reenactment group does most of our events, where we're recording this now. Uh, but he years ago moved to California, but flies back east to do events. So, um you know, your your experience in reenacting, especially in recent years, is going to be very different in a sense because it's characterized by these trips that almost like had better be a vacation, you know? Well, in many ways, it's a, it's a major luxury to be able to do that. I'm fortunate to be in a position where I, I can juggle the commitments of my life to be able to do something like that. But even still, I have massive respect for anyone who drives... Uh, a long distance or flies or any what other mode of transportation you use to get to an event um, the commitment that is needed to go away especially uh, in today's world where connectedness whether it's fair or not is is almost an expectation I mean it is an ex- let's face it it's an expectation that you're going to be available for people who may or may not know the that this hobby even exists and they may or may not care that there are things that someone can do for three days, three or four days, uh, where they don't want to respond to you. And uh, that can be mentally very difficult going in. Uh, so I, but interestingly enough, in, in terms of transportation, in many uh, instances recently, I've flown over the event site all the way to the East Coast, only to drive back with you or someone else to an event. And we've had some wacky times on the road, just going to these things. When you're doing a eight or ten hour drive, uh, I personally, uh, for the Gap, one time drove through a snowstorm by myself in the middle of the night to get there. Uh, we drove through a snowstorm a couple years ago to get to Ohio. We drove through uh, a part of New York 
uh, known to the uh, native inhabitants as the land of great sorrow. That's right. And we were almost befell by that sorrow. We felt uh, the sorrow, certainly. We, we felt the... As we, we tried to navigate we, through a snowstorm to arrive at a reenactment, you know, um, at some time before, you know, 95% of the other participants were going to be getting there. And I think a lot of people listening to this can probably uh, immediately imagine similar stories uh, going to have, going to rural Pennsylvania in the winter, or traveling up to Odessa in the summer, or any other uh, long-distance event uh, where you better be going for more than the weekend because uh, it's going to be over before it begins. If you're driving 10 hours, you're at an event for 12 hours, and you're driving home. It's been done, but I certainly would not want to experience that myself. No, there's like a ratio, you know. I don't want the amount of time I spend on the road to be anything close to the amount of time that I spend, you know, time over target, right, doing your thing. People have done this. I think Ben Longfellow, a former uh, podcast guest uh, for one of the Stalingrads, was at the site for 12 hours, but in the car for 16 hours or something like that. Yeah, 20 hours. I mean, that's admirable commitment. Uh, Don't get me wrong on that. But for me personally, uh, to get in, to pack my kit, uh, put it in a plane, to fly to an event, to, drive, to get a rental car, to complete the trip, uh, I'd better be staying for a while. And I will tell you this, uh, after three days at Stalingrad, I was ready to leave. Sure. That was something where I definitely got my money and time's worth. Uh, now, the gap, I will say, and this is just me speaking longingly about a great event that was so influential in my, my career as a reenactor it was something that i looked forward to so immensely before i'd ever even gone and uh, for those of you out there who never got to experience the gap i uh i feel bad for you i i hope you can experience something like that someday because i put myself into like thursday evening into friday morning you're in the middle of this the meat of this event you've got a lot of people from your unit there everything's going more or less to plan and you are completely immersed in this experience you're looking beyond whatever distractions or flaws may be occurring you're no longer thinking about your everyday life this was of course much easier to do 15 years ago Uh, but even in recent times just being able to immerse yourself in something like that i think is as close as you can get to like the ultimate reenact reenactment experience for me, I don't get that in the tactical necessarily, but I certainly get it when I'm halfway through a long event. I'm a little bit tired, but uh, I just have as much in front of me as behind me. And then always at that event, it, it's the old trope where things that you enjoy go by so quickly, things that you don't enjoy go by so slowly. This was so very enjoyable that, and I will talk about the gap throughout this episode, but this was how I always felt Saturday night. Uh, due to the constraints of the event, we had to be out of the housing, I think it's 7 o'clock on Sunday morning. Some crazy morning. early time, Some yeah. crazy early time. And, of course, the biggest party was Saturday night. And there would be a time on Saturday afternoon where the event was still going on. But you would definitely get that feeling that you get where people are packing up to go. You've got guys in your own barracks who are changing out of their their uniforms into their civilian clothes. And there would just be this feeling of of true somberness that this thing we did this thing but it's it's coming to an end and you would try to hold on i would try to hold on as long as i possibly could that ungodly early hour was coming when we had to leave 
but and this was of course a practical necessity a lot of us had to drive six seven hours to get home from there um, but the best part of that event wasn't showing up and getting setting up it was being immersed halfway through the event and that is a experience that i've never really had uh, otherwise in any other sort of hobbies maybe on vacation from time to time but this was different and it was a communal experience uh, shared between people that I only were drawn together by this hobby. So it's a special thing that I'll always, I'll always relish. I'll never stop talking about it, and uh, I'll always love that event. And I had similar experiences at Odessa and Stalingrad and even Fort Mifflin recently. Sure. Um, well, look, you've alluded a couple of times to um, basically to phones, um, to trying to live in 1944 for for days on on end when meanwhile the modern world is is just proceeding at the pace at which it proceeds and you know it can be hard to get away from work and family and people who are used to having basically 24-hour access via our phones you know what is how do you kind of uh deal with that situation yeah, it definitely sounds vain to say uh, people need access to me. But what I'm really saying is information is coming in. I need that information 360 days a year, except for these five days. I really don't want it. But uh, even if I was tuned out on vacation, I would find some way to get this information and respond in time. And we talked for years and years about putting the phone in the car, turning it off, However, that was a figment of the year 2007. Sure. This is basically social media is in its infancy, uh, email still very clunky. Uh, there's no such thing as Zoom or FaceTime. Really, right now, you can get in touch with anyone in the world that you want instantly with the phone in your pocket. And obviously, the technology in our phones was far more rudimentary at that time yeah it was a literal telephone you and know? you could put it down and say well i just had my phone off and it was socially acceptable you can't say that anymore no there is an expectation that you're available to you know to your work to your people you know in your life your girlfriend boyfriend whatever my unfortunate conclusion is that there you just have to strike a balance with yourself yeah, And I would say the last three or four events that I've done, I've had my phone in my pocket for the majority of the event. I think what you can do is you can be very respectful of the people around you, and you can find a place to go and use it. Uh, humorously, at Stalingrad, that place was the porta potty. I think that that is the that's where it makes the most sense. Yeah, it's when you're when you're doing your business inside the porta potty, you're not reenacting World War II. You could be doing anything in there. Right, it's a totally modern environment. Yeah, and it's a necessary evil. At sure. something like that, where there's no, there's no uh, woods, there's no area to this particular uh, site. Porta potties were needed. For, I mean, even if there was, you know, this kind of is its own. We could probably do our own podcast about sure. just this topic. But even if there was a totally period correct European German military latrine, yeah, do you really want to be reenacting a guy? taking a dump you know what i mean yeah you do but you can't well look it's, you'd I, love I to think, be that hardcore about i don't, it, I don't but know you if really you can can't. it's yeah. like i when i you know i don't know it's like you've got to go to the bathroom you know yeah. this is a universal human experience that we shave that we share with our cavemen ancestors and yet i don't know that you're you know necessarily i don't know my mind is not my mind is not in the game when i'm uh 
when I'm, you know, worrying about the conditions inside the toilet and uh, you can how kill, much toilet paper is left. And you can accomplish two things here. And the, one, the other thing is you can look at your phone and maybe catch up on what you need. And if you're really lucky, people will just leave you alone during that period of time. But the particular example I'm talking about is Stalingrad 2020. Yeah. Last year. The pandemic... Uh, really took off that week we it's been discussed on the podcast before so i won't tread over that ground again but basically this was the week that the stock market went down i don't know ten thousand points whatever per- the president huge percent. the president declared a state of emergency the the situation was uh the situation was developing by the hour by the minute yeah and we were pretending to be in 1942 on the volga river which we did a very admirable job of, but ultimately that that situation crept into the event. So how did how do you re- how do you reconcile that? And I think that really drove home to me that uh, un- the unfortunate truth is that you've got to strike a balance. I found a way to use my phone in a somewhat inconspicuous manner, but I was still using it. Whereas 15 years ago, I would have been totally capable of leaving that thing aside. Yeah. Now, this led to a very interesting phenomenon of trying to reconcile what you were reading on your phone with the information you were receiving firsthand from people. As people arrive, arrived at the event, we physically would shake them and say, what is going on out there? And that was somewhat realistic in its own regard. Now, I'm not trivializing the uh, or minimizing the real-world impact of what was happening. I'm just talking about it in the context of reenacting. There was no way to have you bury your head in the sand in a situation like that. Well, at that the, was a once-in-a-lifetime event. At the end of the day, we had to get to our homes. We had to uh, think about other people. And uh, a lot of us had a long way to travel. And we weren't sure if we were going... For a minute there, we weren't sure if we'd be able to do it. Well, you know, I, I think probably we we've talked about this so much but the the thing is i i actually didn't like that event because of this you know to me it detracted from the event for other people it enhanced it you know everyone's attitude is different but that event was a once in a lifetime thing that's always going to be an outlier to me to be at this uh reenactment from wednesday through saturday night you know while the pandemic is basically crashing like a tidal wave on on our country you know and the two takeaways are one, this is the type of thing that can happen at a long event. Sure. You're going to be away, out of your comfort zone. That's right. And you've got to be ready. You can't really just leave. You've got to be ready to handle that. You're, you have planned this time away. Yeah. People are counting on you. You probably yeah. carpooled with other people. Yeah. And sure, if you have a personal extreme emergency, you know, my wife, uh, you know, got into a motorcycle accident or whatever, right, then... No one's going to begrudge you like, look, this guy's got to go. But barring something like that, there could be all kinds of problems, all kinds of world problems, personal problems that could come up. I mean, this is something I always used to worry about. You know, um, I've been reenacting for a long time, different times in my life, unstable job, unstable situations one way or another, and just turning that phone on on Sunday and crossing my fingers that it wasn't going to be, you have 2,000 text messages because your house burned down. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's always a real thing when you shut it off for a few days. Which now you, I don't think I could do it though. You, I don't know. I don't know if I could. You know, sometimes I have out of necessity um, in my work. I go offshore. I've been offshore. I've been out of cell phone range for as many as twelve days. That's crazy. And at a certain point, you don't want it to come back on. 
Sure, I got. You want to just continue like that, like but uh, it's it's a it's a cerebral experiment that withdraw the information withdrawal. So the other takeaway is, it's not 2007 anymore. I think the cell phone thing. Um, we have to just acknowledge that the expectation of the larger world, the pace that information is, is given to us, the impact that information has on us, it moves quick, and you've got to stay informed on it. Uh, so I think you've got to try to strike some sort of balance where you you can stay connected, you can stay in communication with the outside world, but you've at minimum you've got to be respectful of the other people around you uh, who are trying to reenact. Yeah. And they might be doing the same thing as you. So I think if people can be mutually uh, respectful about keeping the modern technology away, uh, I mean, periodically a phone might come out to capture a photo or video. That never bothers me. But if you're someone was sitting there texting or having even worse, having a phone call, which has happened, not yeah. not nobody in our unit, nobody that I know, but it happens, and it's a major bummer well, when it happens. it might happen with people that we know. Yeah, the, an- you the know. examples I'm thinking of, people I don't know, so I'm not going to call them out because I can't. Uh, don't do that again. But uh, I think we all need to work together on that. And I, th- it hasn't been a distraction to me. Uh, but but it's not that it's, it's the year 2021. Uh, I think just the reconciling the hobby with uh, the way our world is today, a part of that is uh, you really can't turn it off for that period of time, which is unfortunate, but it is what it is. Well, let's talk about some stuff that's maybe a little bit more kind of concrete, um, logistical questions. Yeah. You know, how do you how do you bring enough food? How do you bring enough water? Food's a big one. I mean, when you think about it, uh, 20 people eating three meals a day, is 60 meals times three days is 180 meals. That's a lot of food. Yes, it is. So how do you overcome that? In our previous unit, we had a field kitchen, which was a great asset. And as I, I don't want to get into too much of a historical dis- discussion here, uh, but as I understand, the role of the field kitchen was to cook all day, supply one hot meal to the company, and that was the hot ration of the day supplemented by cold rations. I'm always surprised at these events how little I actually do eat in the Mm. field compared to how I would eat in the normal world. I'm talking, I might not have anything for breakfast. I might eat something small throughout the day and then have the hot meal at night. But it was a great asset for us to do this at the unit level, to buy bulk food, to feed everyone once a day for two of the days. And then really you just have to worry about supplemental rations. I feel like I always used to bring enough food for myself for the duration, uh, just in case. But sure. I would never, ever eat all of it. Right. Uh, there are different ways that's been accomplished. There's communal meals now at certain events, which uh, are varying in quality and substance. Um, there's sometimes food from the outside that makes its way in. People will bring, uh, out of the graciousness of their heart, a giant tub of pierogies and pass them around, which is always appreciated. Um, There's a lot of different ways to attack it. We've done unit-level cold rations before, which is a great idea, but it it goes back to the point on preparation. It requires a lot of work. Um, I remember one of the Odessa events we did, we bought a ton of canned ham, 
and some crackers and all kinds of different things. And we had one ration to be distributed once a day, and it was the same thing every day. And by the third day, one of our NCOs said, why is it the same thing? I said, well, that's kind of the extra realism free of charge here. <laughs> but uh, I think, you know, you have to always consider that you got to eat. Yeah. And like you said, you've got to bring water. And what do we say, about one gallon a day per person? That's how we generally do it. Yeah. And the way that I do it now um, in my group is we just ask people to bring. Everybody bring uh, bring one gallon of water for every day that you're going to be there. And, you know, we will store this water in plastic jugs um, either hidden somewhere at the site or in our cars and then can go to that water point for resupply from the jug. Th- this is at events where we don't have where the event itself doesn't offer any kind of water like um, mentioning the Odessa New York event they usually have a big thing full of water. Um, you know other events I've been to have this as well where they have this large drinking water supply for participants to take advantage of. That's a really uh, that's a really good thing you can do for added realism is have some sort of period uh, uh, jug or uh, a steel or aluminum container, something to decant water from in your particular area uh, from the larger water supply. I mean, that's a small thing that, that, to me, adds a lot. Even just having a small aluminum container for transporting water and then filling the canteen from there or making the soup with that is, uh, to me, that just adds so much to it. Sure. Um, What about, you know, like other logistical considerations, like you don't necessarily know what kind of weather you're going to be dealing with. And if you're there for days, the chances of one of those days having a thunderstorm or or worse, right, becomes increased. And it seems like it rains a lot when we reenact, doesn't it? Sometimes it seems like we have a whole year of rain. Just when we're at the event and then it's sunny the next day. Yeah. I think straw is the the most interesting one for me. Coming from the suburbs like I do, uh, it took me until I became a reenactor to know where to get straw. Sure. For sleeping on the ground. Well, why would any, you know, you, these why are one of those things you would never need in your life. Exactly. So you uh, you figure that out. Uh, is it it's, uh, tractor supply? Where Where is it that we always go? I go to Agway usually. Agway, yes. Sorry. But I, I think tractor supply has it too. Tra- yeah. There are these chains uh, of, of places and, and farms, farm stands, you know, uh, there's different ways, different places to get straw. Yeah, when you're departing from a suburban or an urban area to go do something in a rural place, uh, there are resources along the way to make things 1940s style, but you're not necessarily going to have those things at your point of departure. So you've got to plan that into your into your logistical plan, into your transport plan. Like, I've got to stop. I'm gonna make multiple stops. I gotta stop and get food. I gotta stop and get straw. I gotta stop and get alcohol, possibly if you need that. Or I gotta stop and get water or fuel for the uh, lamps. Or I need to get wood for the for the heating apparatus. You always seem to be dealing with uh, wood for the stove. So uh, I don't know what your technique is for that. But well, it has to be planned in advance. Yeah. You know, you need. I need to know two weeks before. You know, I need to be like, okay, well, next week my my free evenings are going to be these evenings. My free mornings are going to be at this time. And in those times, I need to be, you know, I need to buy wood now so that I can cut it up 
to be the right size for the stove you know I, I, you mentioned alcohol that's kind of an interesting thing because i kind of like that for long duration field events uh it can be diff difficult for somebody to basically be like drinking all the time because you're out there for days and how many beers are you going to bring a hundred beers out there like that's not going to work right you know whereas there have been other times at um garrison events where we've even had like a keg of beer which has its own realism or in the best uh, case you have a situation where everyone brings a little bit right and you can either decide we're going to have a little bit the whole time or a lot one time or we're gonna have a lot one time sure and it usually goes that way doesn't it because that's a lot more fun but it makes the rest of it the rest of the event benefits from the sobriety I remember uh, reading a veteran m memoir uh, from a World War II German veteran who was describing uh, that his men, the men, he and the men in his squad were given a, an alcohol ration. And then later on, they heard the NCOs like getting merry. And everybody was furious because they were like, there was no way we could get merry on what we got. Yeah. So they must have been drinking ours, you know. Well, it's... And uh, that's kind of the thing. It's like... What's the value in having, in a sense, even in a field setting, what's the value of having one drink? There is no value. There is no I, value. I've never consumed alcohol for the uh, for the feeling of, I've, I drink it to get drunk. Mm, yeah, well, that's, the, that's what it is. And as I get older, uh, the hangovers get longer and longer, <laughs> and I only want to do it once every once in a while. Yeah. So I, I like that in recent times when we everyone brings a little bit. Oh, to be clear, we're talking here about uh, garrison events. Yeah. Where, yeah. where you know, field events, I, I, I might not get drunk at all whatsoever, you know, but in, in a situation where you're supposed to be in some kind of French cafe or sure. in, a, in a garrison town or whatever it is, I think, it's, I think it can be appropriate. And I think it becomes part of the, uh, the mental zone for the whole group. Everyone sure. has to make that decision together. Um, so yeah, and then you know, circling back to food, uh, I've always found for a longer event, you know, refrigeration becomes an issue. Perishable food. What are you gonna What are you gonna bring that's going to last without a refrigerator? Well, most of the stuff you eat in your everyday life, you put in the you put in the fridge, and you eat it days later. Well, if you're bringing vegetables out to an event, you've got a plan to eat those. Either put them in a soup and cook them, or eat them early. So for me, it's always simple it's canned meat uh, canned vegetables bread and uh you know maybe some sort of chocolate which will last but i mean very simple uh, i'm not trying to cook on my esbit stove or something every single day it's uh, fresh meat's gonna go bad uh, cheese will go bad and one nice thing about uh fort indian town gap was you could just put the food outside the window it took place it in the winter in time. a refrigerator yeah. but if you go to an, a, a warm weather event you've got to factor that in so uh sure so that's a big one and uh i think it's up to the individual what they're going to bring for food everyone here has their own technique for what they're going to bring how they're going to package it uh what they might be doing with it but uh, being able to do at least one or two communal meals during a long event takes a lot of that heat off the individual uh, and, of course, you're going to throw in a little bit of money uh, for that. But it really, I mean, that's how it was. And that's, uh, at best, how it should be at an event. Well, let me ask you this. Here's kind of a big question. You know, you have these days where 
maybe the event has something planned for you, but maybe you have to kind of make your own fun for a few days before the planned part of the event kicks off. Yeah. So how do you fill those days? You know, it always kind of shocked me every time how excited we would get to go to an event on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. And then you get there and you realize nobody else is here. That's right. Because for the majority of participants, what is practical in their lives, and I completely respect and understand the myriad reasons why people can only take so much time off for their hobbies, they're going to show up Friday evening or Saturday morning. There's always a big influx of people Saturday morning, and there's always going to be a certain balance of participants who are just there for the day on Saturday. They show up, they do their thing, they leave. We're doing something a little bit different, and it's it would always be very jarring like okay all these people are are on the roster to attend oh there's only five of us here or you know in certain circumstances there's only three of us here there are ways to pass that time sometimes it's repetitive sometimes it's boring i'm not talking about sleeping in half the day but uh i, I mean for example at the gap uh we would go on some long walks yeah we'd hang out uh, we would tell stories, work on, on things in the barracks, just mundane things that people did. But I think the uh, best way to approach it is to contextualize that within the kind of mental zone and say, well, we're the advanced party. The rest of the company is still in transit, and which is realistic. They're, you know they're coming. Right. And you know you're there. So it's almost realistic to kind of slack off a little bit. Sure. There's no officers here. There's no NCOs here. It's just us. Nobody's watching us. We're in the middle of this war. Uh, we can take it easy a little bit. So and many times it devolves into just hanging out with your friends. Well, we did some events in the past where we had planned out whole scheduled days of mm -hmm. training, mm -hmm. um, you know, marching, uh, rifle drill trainings, specialized weapons familiarization, you know, squad tactics, platoon tactics. Um, and those those were some memorable events. Yeah. I will say I don't know. I think of you and I eventually came to the conclusion that some of that, like, okay, we're going to do this between this time and this time, this is 45 minutes, this is an hour and 15 minutes. Yeah. That was maybe not a good way to spend our effort in the planning process. I think you'll remember a younger me had a hard time coming to that coming to that realization that uh, you, can, uh, you can plan, 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 but uh, you're really only going to achieve a fraction of what you planned. If you achieved everything, that's the perfect score. Nobody ever. There's no such thing as perfection. Sure. So you, yeah, it's expect expectation versus reality, right? How are we going to fill this time? And a lot of that was uh, just spending time together. Sure. And that increased camaraderie over the years. Um, and a lot of that was learning to not be disappointed in other people for not being there because they're balancing the hobby with their lives. So when you do a long event. You've got to realize that there's going to be a certain number of people who aren't viewing it as a long event also. They're viewing, maybe they live closer. Maybe they only have so much time. You're going to be there for a, uh, a while, and they're not going to be there yet. And it's exciting when people do show up, and I think that's kind of a realistic sense, like sensation uh, that, you can, that you can kind of experience. Oh, like, here's my friend that I haven't seen in, in weeks.
he's finally here um and uh yeah so i've 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 tried not to over plan in recent years uh the Stalingrad events, we were portraying a uh, headquarters uh, clerk typists, and there was only so much we could really do. And I think we did a good job of, at least in the first of the two Stalingrads that we attended in 2019, on getting hyper-focused on like one or two office functions and doing a really good job of knocking that out of the park and then just kind of sitting back and enjoying it. And that circles back to what I was saying earlier about once you're there, you're immersed in it. Well, I, you know, I wanted to bring that up because, you know, you mentioned that in some situations it might just be a few people for yeah. a while. Yeah. And I find that it can be hard in certain circumstances to sustain that make-believe aspect that's kind of important to my reenacting style. Sure. Um, so how do you keep that going? Well, we've talked in the past about how three of us could be sitting around talking about Taco Bell. Well, that's the ultimate. And it would, and it would feel, in a Taco Bell. In, in a Taco Bell. But talking would, about World War II. And it would feel realistic. Yeah. Or we could be sitting around in our uniforms at a campfire talking about Taco Bell. But make it realistic. It doesn't necessarily have to be a perfectly contextual experience. The actual participants of World War II sat around talking about mundane things all the time. Sure. I'm pretty sure they did. I can't prove that, did. but I'm sure they did. Yeah. Uh, maybe not Taco Bell. But they but probably food. talked about food they wanted to eat. And I think we've agreed uh, over the years that it's not necessarily the context of what you're talking about as the, f- the flow of the conversation, the sincerity, the longing for something that you can't have. Uh, these are almost more realistic than trying to simulate an exact conversation that would have taken place in 1944. That being said... Uh, about a year and a half ago, or maybe I guess two years ago now, uh, we were in a bunker together, and you told me your entire life story in German, <laughs> uh, which you later professed that you were making up on the spot, but it didn't sound that way. And uh, I think that was like obviously as close as I will ever get um, in many ways to that to something like that happening. But uh, like you said, we've reenacted in front of a Taco Bell. That's right, eating Taco Bell. And we still think back to that as a really cool moment. So how do you how do you spend the time? There's a lot of different ways to spend the time. Sure. I think as long as you're not uh, letting the, let's say, the politics of the moment or the, uh, the passions of the moment or uh, things happening, you know, that have nothing to do with reenacting uh, or you're, maybe you're talking about the parts of reenacting that aren't necessarily... Uh, like you're, you're talking about the next, the latest, greatest reproduction or something like that. As long as you're not completely bogged down in that, I think you're doing pretty well. Those are some of my best memories in the hobby. Just sitting on the top of a hill on a Wednesday at an, at an event in the field, a long event, and knowing you have the whole thing in front of you. And before you know it, that time has gone by because you're enjoying it so much. It goes by so fast. It's so fleeting. So I don't think there's really much point in harping on what are we going to do from 12 to 4 on Wednesday? What are we going to do from 11 to 1 on Thursday? What's going to happen is going to happen. You're going to wake up. You're going to want to eat. You're going to eat throughout the day. You're going to talk to each other. You're definitely going to get up and move around. And before you know it, uh, it's over. Yeah. And people are, are arriving. So I think that's how you get through a long event. You just live it. You live that life. 
I like that that moment of anticipation so much that you describe when you're there on Wednesday um, and you know you're going to be sleeping there for four nights. You know, that you're going to have four consecutive nights sleeping in the tent or in the barracks or whatever it's going to be. I mean, I and there's a certain amount of pride that I've felt a few times where there's hundreds of people going to an event, but I'm the first person there. Absolutely. Know? The very first boots on the first ground. First boots on the ground. That, that's I know. an awesome moment. Yeah, you're Neil Armstrong. Sure. Um, I also uh, like... The, the effect that happens when you've been living in a maybe a small shared space with people for a while and I don't know if it's like a base human instinct or may I know there's accounts from the war of uh, German soldiers improving their positions with uh, basic woodworking or just making decorations and paint uh, making things more homey over time a place that you might be stuck for a month or more and that seems to kind of happen instinctively when you're sharing i can think of many small spaces we've shared with like six to eight people where after a while uh systems start to form um things start to become organized a certain way i don't think it turns into a real mess i think it gets more organized the longer you're there that's just my how i feel about it but you start getting more comfortable in the space everyone has their their area um i can think of fort mifflin when we we were bringing massive amounts of wood into our our casemate because it was so cold and i looked at all the wood and i said i i think we have enough wood and you said there's this isn't close to as much wood as we need and we spent a lot of time uh gathering that wood yeah. and organizing it and it was everywhere <laughs> everywhere you looked it was wood and but we needed it in the morning there was no wood left <laughs> so this is like a system that you get i mean and this goes back to the to a more of a base survival instinct we needed heat to That's live right. uh we're we're basically living outside we're not living in the year 2021 anymore uh i might have my phone next to me but there's no heat uh so we need that and you and then throughout the night people get cold and wake up and stoke the fire it's not like it's something that happens on a regimented schedule it's like i'm cold we need a fire some people are more cold than others depending on their proximity to the fireplace you always have the coldest spot i try to take the coldest spot because i i don't think i can ask somebody else to sleep in a worse spot than where i have to sleep but we improved the as i recall even in that event we improved our space uh we eventually kind of worked on some insulation yeah we some blocked draft some drafts spots, yeah. you know my you, spot was not bad in that your spot was worse than mine as it turned out i but was we closer have known to the fire that. somehow no, no i was closer to the fire well, it was cold. It was cold. I, I was cold. Yeah, I also you live were in a very warm cold. place. That's I've, right. My blood has thinned since <laughs> I lived here for 22 years. But uh, I think that's like a cool phenomenon that you can, outdoors in their camp or indoors in some sort of indoor setting, I think naturally people living in a group setting like that, it's, it's base, it's in our nature. We start to form efficient, more efficient systems. We become more organized. Uh you become more effective at what you're doing and that's a great phenomenon to just kind of observe in retrospect of these long events because when you're there for one night it's let's just get through this night and leave but when you know you're there for three or more nights you want to make that as comfortable as possible and the actual participants in the war did the same thing to the, a certain extent um, our gap barracks uh, were very comfortable 
I don't think I was ever at more comfortable in any reenactment setting than in those in those barracks. But uh, I think in, in more recent times, even in Stalingrad, uh, we were constantly fighting against smoke inhalation in our in our basement uh, lodgings. But we also had it pretty organized, and everyone had a had an area, and uh, that's a cool a cool way to pass the time too. Is just to kind of look at how how uh, the systems develop for survival. Yeah, the the Forty Newton Gap events. For anyone who's not familiar with this event, it took place on a military base and military barracks. So this was an event where we were sleeping on military bunk beds, and there were showers and hot and cold running water and heated bathrooms. And you know that was like, uh, I mean, that was as comfortable in a sense as living in a hotel almost. It was true luxury. Sure. Um, I will always cherish the time i've said this before i'll always cherish the time at that event it was like nothing else i've ever done um and we i spent a lot of time you probably spent months of your life at that event. i think i figured it out it was like three months or something yeah. over the years i spent there very comfortable sure um okay well here's something that uh, i wanted to talk about uh as far as really enjoying these things a term that i've heard you guys use on the podcast quite a phrase uh, suspension of disbelief now the more i think about it suspending your disbelief uh sounds kind of counterintuitive to me i think it's we're missing words here but i think it should be suspension of belief i think in either case uh you're saying the right thing but what we're talking about is when you're going to an, a long event and you've got yourself ready to teleport back to the night to the 1940s and then something happens like a, an f-150 rolls up or a 747 flies overhead or like an emerge there's an, a medical emergency and emts are all of a sudden on the site there's nothing you can do about that except suspend your disbelief of what's well, happening look, what i think is um Reenacting is about suspension of disbelief. So you're in this situation where you you are trying to believe that you are in World War II, but you are experiencing a constant disbelief because you know that you're not in World War II. So you need to suspend that disbelief to be able to think, okay, I am in World War II. You know, that's that to me is what, what this is about. I can see it that way. I suppose the point I'm trying to make is when something absurd happens. When you've already suspended your belief. You've suspended your disbelief. So you've just you've said what I say. Well, no, no. Suspension you, of belief. I misspoke. When you've suspended your disbelief yeah. and you are now believing. Yes. Sometimes you need to stop believing mm -hmm. for a certain amount of time yeah. only to resume believing again. It's a complex hobby. <laughs> and these are the discussions we should be having about yeah, it. Sure. It's not for everybody. Uh -huh. It's it takes a special type. Uh, my feeling is that once once you are, I think I've gotten better at this in recent years. Where things used to bother me, they used to get under my skin, and I have a notoriously short fuse. Things would get under my skin, and it would ruin an entire day for me. And it was because I couldn't believe what I was seeing. So I think I've gotten better at suspending what I believe I'm seeing <laughs> when somebody rolls up in the truck and starts unloading next to your camp on Saturday. Well, that is a situation that would induce belief, just induce disbelief. I can't believe this is happening. That's a disbelief. That is disbelief. But it, but I, I believe it is happening. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, anyway, we could go around in sure. circles on this, but yeah. uh, I just what. think you know we should agree that that is a special consider. I think the long event gives you an opportunity to more more of an opportunity than almost anything else you can do on Earth to get away from the modern world, to get away from the things that are bothering you, and it really can reset you, give you some perspective on your life. Because when else are you going to go away, try to ignore your phone? try to ignore the outside world and get together with a bunch of people who are all pretty much on the same page doing something so very esoteric. I think these are, for me, the the crux of the hobby. They're why I still do the hobby. or why I will fly across the country because these things are worth my time. And even if I'm at a four-day event and there's just a 10-minute period where I'm transported back, we've called, we've talked about this You've talked about it on the podcast. We've talked about this for 15 years. The zone. Yeah. What do we mean by zone? And the zone, for me, is a moment in time where you could be back there. Uh, you're probably missing a few key details. Something is always going to be different. But for me, it's as close as I'm ever going to get to time travel. And it's something I've only ever experienced in this hobby. I've been to historical sites not related to the Second World War. I've been in historical homes. I've been around historical objects, and looking at an object in a museum is not the same as being in a place where there might not be any artifacts from the war. It might all be reproductions. But you're in it. You find yourself in a dingy, smoke-filled basement with a bunch of people in uniform, speaking a language that is not your native language, uh, or singing in that language as it might be, um, and you've got kind of the. All five senses are immersed in this experience, and you're not thinking about anything else. To me, that's the that's the brass ring. That's what we're going for. That's what keeps me going in this thing. And I'll chase that as long as I possibly can. And even if it's ten minutes out of a four-day event, that whole experience, all everything that went through it, whether it's a lifestyle or a hobby or a vacation or some combination therein, it makes it worthwhile for me. All of the expenditure, uh, all of the things that every one of us goes through to do this hobby. So uh, I'm really glad that we've experienced so many of those times together. I'm sure there will be many more. Uh, for me, it's worth it. It's something that only a few people can understand. And I think earlier today we were talking about it, and we're talking about an upcoming uh, an upcoming event uh, that we're going to do potentially. And uh, we were talking about whether it was worthwhile to try to overplan it. And I said, well, at this point, and we've been at this point honestly for a long time. As long as we're all there and we've got our uniforms on, it's not just the zone, it's an auto zone. It's just going to, it's going to happen. <laughs> and I hope that everyone out there listening uh, has a few friends in their unit or uh, however you, maybe a lot of, uh, maybe everyone in your unit, but at least a few people that you can participate in this hobby with where you can get into the auto zone as well. And I think uh, everyone will access that differently, but it's a special thing. And it's, uh, for me, it's worth pursuing. It's one of them events where you can't really describe it. You sort of have to be there because it just felt so much like you were actually at Normandy. I think that female reenacting is still sort of in its embryonic stage. But I do think that there is room to grow. A lot of reenactors probably had like some sort of burnout maybe from like years past. It sucks, but it was a pretty good pause for everyone to kind of like regroup and like kind of like a Really nice refresh to get back out there. The Reenactors Corner, bringing history to life.
Well, I think uh, that's a good place to uh, kind of wrap this up. Um, Felix, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks also for your uh, Patreon support. I appreciate that very much. Um, to everybody out there, um, look, uh, it's not free to run the podcast. It costs money, and um, we really can't do it without your support. So thank you very much to everybody who donates via patreon and if you enjoy the podcast and and listen to it all the time and if you can help out we would love it if you could so um felix uh it's this was a great talk and i appreciate uh you coming on here very much um if anybody uh, i guess wants to get in touch with you they can uh send a message to the reenactors corner and and we'll get in touch with you sure thing cool yeah all right in that case uh thank you again felix for coming on thank you I'll see you in the field. All right. See you in the field. Before we go, you may want to check out Feller Kopf over at German-WorldWar2.com. That is German-WW2.com, where they sell lots of pocket litter and a lot of cool paperwork stuff. And you can get 7% off of your next purchase there by using the discount code PODCAST2020, that is PODCAST2020, at checkout. Once again, uh, and as always, thanks to Mike, a.k.a. Retroman, for editing this podcast. Thanks, Mike.